0: So you'll take your Bible and find uh the book of Psalms. Find uh s- specifically Psalm 117. So we're still in this series we began last week in the in the Psalms. I'm really excited about this. I uh I've never taught a whole series just in the Psalms. I don't know why. <laughs> I've been teaching a long time. I don't know why I've never done this, but I'm excited to do it now. And if you were here last week, you know that we uh, we just spent a little bit of time giving an overview of the importance of the Psalms, the importance of the book of Psalms um, to our, our prayer life and our praise, worship, uh, the worship of our hearts. We gave a, a quick overview of the structure of the book uh, and, and uh, the different kinds of Psalms that you find in the book. We'll we'll rehash a bit of that tonight because I know some of you may not have been here last week. We saw, for example, the importance of the book of Psalms, you see it even within the Bible itself. We saw both Old Testament and New Testament in the fact that people both Old and New Testament uh, were praying the Psalms. The two examples we gave, like from the Old Testament, the example we gave was Hannah who Uh, you find in 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel's mother, Hannah. So Hannah had been praying to the Lord. She couldn't have a child, and she'd been praying that the Lord would give her a child, and he answered her prayer. And when she had Samuel, she dedicated him to the Lord, and when she dedicated him to the Lord, she brought him to the temple uh, and dedicated him to the Lord, and she prayed a prayer that is recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you read that prayer, and then read Psalm 113. There's a lot of striking similarities between those two prayers. It's almost as if, it's not verbatim, but it's almost as if thematically, it, those things were on her mind. It's like she had been reading and meditating on Psalm 113. What is now to us Psalm 113? An ancient, ancient prayer. And it came out in her prayer. In the, in the New Testament, the example we gave was Jesus. Like in as he hung on the cross. I mentioned that the, the, last, the last prayer he ever uttered from his human lips was uh, on the cross was, "Father into your hands I commit my spirit." And he breathed his last and he died. That was from his heart, but it was also quoting Psalm 31:5. "Into your hand I commit my spirit." That psalm was on his mind as he hung dying. He had already earlier on the cross cried out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is Psalm 22. And, and, and so the Psalms were just, uh, in his most anguished moment, those are the words that gave words to the cry of his heart. Old Testament, New Testament, even our Lord Jesus Christ praying these Psalms. So if Scripture teaches us anything from that about the Psalms, it, it, it at least teaches us that God has given us this book. He's given us these words, these psalms, to be the voice of our prayer life back to Him. And if that sounds a little funny, He's given us the words that we pray back to Him. Just realize how gracious it is of God to, to give us the very words that actually do, in fact, express the deepest recesses of our hearts and at the same time are the written expression of his very will so that if we pray those words we know we're praying his will and whatever it cries out for we will have because it's his will we're going to come to that point again and again throughout this series but like i said last week we talked a little bit about the structure of the psalms and the different kinds of psalms. Uh, If if the psalms, I'll say this, if the psalms are ever going to be a part of our prayer life like they were for Hannah, like they were for the Lord Jesus, if they're ever going to be a part of our uh, regular prayer life, we're going to have to become intimately acquainted with this book. We're going to have to know it deeply in our bones, what it is and how to understand it. Because for some of you, it could be that you're familiar with a couple of psalms, but the psalms on the whole are kind of mysterious to you. You never have really just, they never have just resonated with you. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some thinking. And so uh, we talked about how this book, 150 Psalms, it it was arranged by someone, don't know who, after the period of the exile. Think about the history of Israel. This is important. It may sound kind of classroomish, but it's 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 really important to understanding the book. It was written, or at least compiled, not written. written. Some of these psalms are very, very old. Moses has a psalm, Psalm ninety. It was com- all these were gathered up and collected and compiled and arranged sometime after the period of the exile. So think, think Israel's history. After King Solomon died, the nation of Israel. Sp- Got, they got mad at each other and disagreed on some things and that split in two. A northern kingdom kept the name Israel. A southern That was the northern ten tribes of the twelve. The southern two tribes were Judah. Israel had its own king. Judah had its own king. But God, because of their disobedience, God brought judgment on both of them. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians, Assyrians, took over Israel, carried them off into exile, scattered them. They never came back together. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians took the southern kingdom, took them off into exile. Fortunately, when the Persians took over, they allowed some of them to come back home. And it was after that period when they came back home that someone collected all of these psalms. And many of these psalms were written during that period of exile, a lot of them. Let me just give you one example. Uh, You you can hold your place here at Psalm 117. Just turn over to Psalm 137. I'll have it on the screen, but if you want to look at it in your own Bible, just look with me at the first four verses of Psalm 137. And you see how some of these were written during the the exile period. We don't know who who wrote this. It's anonymous, but... It begins, the first four verses, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion, how shall we sing of the Lord's song in a foreign land? Are you, just, you can just feel the sorrow in that. I mean, use, use your imagination. Put yourself in the shoes of the psalmist. Imagine, imagine what it must be, must be like to be carried away from your home into another place daily mocked by the people who... I mean, just what, 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 what... We're so far away from that, we don't have categories from that. Your struggle may not be exactly like that struggle, but it is... Your Whatever your struggle is surely is not any deeper than that sorrow there. I and mean, you can go back to Psalm 117. But whoever, whoever put the book of Psalms together as we know it, after the exile, structured it into five different sections, five different books, five books in one book, probably like the first five books of the Bible, books of Moses, I don't know. But just to review, those, those, those sections are, there's books one, two, three, four, and five, and those are the divisions, of, and they're clearly marked in your English Bible. And I said last week that there's a pattern of emphasis on e- in each of those books, each of those sections. Uh, and we'll, we'll refer to that from time to time, including tonight. But even more than be arranged like that in different books, there are different kinds of psalms, different kinds, different genres of psalms. So we mentioned six, praise, lament, thanksgiving, confidence, kingship or royal psalms, and wisdom psalms. And... Um, why is it important to think through these things and know them? Um, okay, so bear me out on this. Mark Mark is a he's a professor of Hebrew and Old Testament at, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Mississippi. And he, he gives a great example of why it's important to think through seemingly boring stuff like this um, about to, in order to understand the Psalms or really any passage. Here, here's... Here's what he said. Here, he gives two reasons why it's important to think through this. And one is, knowing this, it guides our expectations when we come to that passage. It guides your expectation. Here's what he said. When, for example, you open a book and you read the words, once upon a time, you're not surprised if on page two you encounter a tree talking to a little girl. Why no surprise? Why no disbelief? Because our words, once upon a time, uh, guide your expectations. Once upon a t- yeah, categories determine what you will and will not expect on the following pages. Once upon a time indicates that you're reading a fairy tale and trees talking to little girls is perfectly acceptable in that category. Conversely, if you read the words I'm writing in regard to the article that was in the paper last week and the, this piece goes on to describe a conversation between a tree and a little girl, you're quite surprised or perplexed. Why? Because the opening words have guided your expectations. These words determine what you will and will not allow as believable, but what you're reading. I'm writing in regard to this article that was in the paper last week indicates that you're reading a letter to the editor, and talking trees are not expected in this category. So knowing this helps us know what to expect when we come to that kind of psalm. Second reason he gives. Uh, that it it, it, in addition to guiding our expectation it gives us more context to understand what's written not just what to expect there but when we get there what how to understand what is there he gives this example categories are also important because they provide an additional layer of context context is essential for interpretation to put it simply context determines meaning the same words in different contexts can have completely different meanings What, for example, does the following sentence mean? That's a bad board. That's a bad board. The answer depends on the context in which these words are spoken. Imagine that you're at the local uh, lumberyard, and you overhear a customer say to a sales representative, that's a bad board. Here, board means lumber, and bad means not good, as in cracked or crooked. Now, imagine you're at the beach, and overhear one of my sons say to a fellow surfer, that's a bad board. In this context, board means a surfboard, and bad means something very good. Same words mean different things. Why? Different context. Because context determines meaning. It's thus essential for interpretation. (laughs) Nobody's going to say that's a bad board, man. Uh, You get what he's saying, though. The better we understand the context, the better we understand the text. Categories provide a a context and therefore help us understand the text. So thinking, thinking about the kind of psalms that we have in this book of Psalms, will help us understand and get more out of every psalm you come to. So tonight we're going to dive into the first category of these, and that is psalms of praise, psalms of praise. Sometimes you'll see this kind of psalm referred to as just hymns. And aside from laments, this is the most common type of psalm in the book of psalms. Laments are actually, if that teaches you anything, laments are the most common type of psalm. In the Book of Psalms, but aside from that, psalms of praise are the most. I've asked us to turn to Psalm 117, which is actually the scripture we used as a call to worship earlier. It looked it's it's the clearest example of a psalm of praise, as well as holding the title to being the shortest psalm in the whole Psalter. It's just two verses. It's the whole thing. So uh, we'll read it again, but then I want us to step back, say a few things about. Psalms of praise in general, and then before seeing it particularly illustrated here in Psalm 117. So if you found that place in your Bible, let's read it again. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever praise the lord let's pray lord this is this right here these these few words in our english praise the lord is three words but in the hebrew one hallelujah give us eyes to see the beauty here give us eyes to see the beauty not just in the words but through these words to see you these words are holy inspired and errant Sufficient, clear, authoritative, necessary, beautiful. Give us eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to embrace and love, wills to obey. Open our ears, open our eyes, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, just to remind you of something I said last week about Psalms of praise, um, is that what they are praising God for in this category is, is usually... Big picture stuff that God has done in history, like with his people, redemptive history. Big, big events, big momentous things. So think the exodus being delivered out of slavery in Egypt. Or, or, or think just mighty acts uh, in, in, in Israel's history or praising God for the coming of the Messiah. Big stuff. So they're focused on what God has done or is doing or will do big picture for his people. And, and there's something, um, there's something that, that is interesting, at least to me, um, in that about how, how Psalms are, are the book of Psalms is laid out in terms of these Psalms of praise. Remember, that I said there's five books, right? And I said last week, and I ended at it again this week, that each of those books has its own unique interest. Uh, or not interest, but uh, emphasis. Okay, so remember, books one and two, books one and two, the, so the first almost half of the Psalms are mostly by David, about David's life. Okay? Book three, when you get there, is a big fat cloud of discouragement. <laughs> Book three is, is the saddest section of... Um, of the psalms because most of these were written while they were in exile there is no king they're in a foreign land god promised that there would be a forever king on the throne and there's not a king on the throne has god abandoned us and it and they're just lament after lament book four sort of comes out of that a little bit and it kind of looks it's, it's it's shakes shakes out and then looks back at at moses day and says A lot of those psalms are like, remember what God did back then? Maybe he'll do that again for us. And then book five is like fireworks. It's like, yes, he's going to. A king is coming. A king is coming. That's book five. And uh, the funny thing is you can see the the structure of that book. You can see the psalms and the laments play out in that way. So um, in book one, there are mainly about david's life there are there are more than twice as many lament psalms as praise songs remember the hardships david went through saul was trying chasing him trying to kill him a lot of laments in book one book two there laments and praise are about the same number in book three the low point of the book exile psalms there are no praise psalms it's all laments then book four as they look back to moses day you praise outnumbers laments, and then book five, there are more than three times as many praises as laments. That's how you see it in the Psalms. And it ends with five straight praise psalms. So let's think about what these praise psalms look like, what what they look like when we find them, help us see them clearly and identify their markers. They do follow a typical pattern uh, with just minor differences. And the common pattern is this, I'm not going to put it on the screen, just, just listen. They will typically open up with a summons or a command or an invitation to praise the Lord, an invitation to worship. That's, that's the first mark of it. And then after it has summoned you to praise the Lord, it then begins to give reasons why you should praise the Lord. And then after it has given the reasons, it comes back at the end and commands you to praise God again. So it's like, praise the Lord, here's why, praise the Lord. That's, that's, the, that's the praise psalms, it's pretty simple. And uh, you see it very simply laid out here in Psalm 117. That's exactly what it does. It begins, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. That's the, that's the opening. Like I said earlier in my prayer, in Hebrew it's just, hallelujah, all nations, extol him, all peoples. And While we're here, basically, let me point out a very common feature in the Psalms uh, that has a fancy name, parallelism. It's basically saying the same thing twice in different ways. That's what you see there in verse 1. Praise the Lord, mirrors extol him. All nations, mirrors all peoples. Praise the Lord, all nations, say the same thing differently, extol him, all peoples. But it continues. So it opens with that command, and it, and it states the, reason, the reasons he is to be praised. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and his faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So two reasons. One, he's loved us with a covenant love, so praise him. And his faithfulness never goes away, so praise him. And notice, notice in that short, tiny psalm, even, even in this one, notice that the psalmist, whoever it was, is not praising God for things that God did for him personally in his own individual life. He doesn't say for his steadfast love toward me, he says toward us. Toward us. It's not as if they never considered their own personal life individually. But they had a much stronger sense of "I matter because I'm part of this community. I can't think of myself apart from this community." Than we do. I'm a part of a whole. And then, when it comes down to the end of the end of the psalm, it, it it begins. It ends like it began. Praise the Lord. They almost always follow that pattern. Invitation. Here's the reason. Here's the invitation again. Um it'll have those ingredients even if the particulars look different. So, for example, the opening invitations to praise, they're all over the place, right? A lot of times, it's, it's just a, 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 general, a general invitation. So, for example, here's how Psalm 95 begins. Oh, come, let us sing. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. That's how it begins. That's that's just a... Come, come, let's sing to the Lord. And then, interestingly, the next verse begins with the reasons. For, for the Lord our God is a great God. (laughs) Or sometimes... Sometimes it's not even an invitation or a command. Sometimes it's just a, a statement or an assertion of praise. So think of how Psalm 8 begins famously. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. That's a praise psalm. It doesn't begin by commanding you to praise. It just begins praising. Or Psalm 48 Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God His Holy Mountain. Just a statement. But then most of the, most of the praise psalms don't begin like that. They, they begin addressing a specific audience, calling them to praise the Lord. So praise the Lord, you heavenly beings. Praise the Lord, O you righteous. Praise the Lord, all peoples. Praise the Lord, all the earth. Praise the Lord, O you servants of the Lord. Praise the Lord, all nations. Praise the Lord, angelic and heavenly beings. Praise the Lord, you assembly of the godly. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And sometimes the psalmist even calls on himself to praise the Lord. Like Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And that's all of us. Nobody got that. I know, thank you. What's that, what is the Jeb Bush? Please, please clap. Um, So the invitations to these these psalms of praise, they have a huge variety. Um, But in essence, they're all the same. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. My, my, My own soul needs to praise him. All the nations need to praise him. The angels need to praise him. Let everything that has breath praise him. So the invitations are all over the place. But then when you read enough, and then but after the after the invitations come, they start stating the reasons. And when you read enough of these reasons, you begin to see that by and large, the reasons that the praise psalms praise the Lord. I told you it's big picture stuff. The reasons, though they're stated in different ways they have there's basically four main categories of reasons why these praise songs praise the lord um one is that god is the creator he's the creator i already i I showed you the first part of psalm 95 oh come let us sing to the lord right here are the reasons given in psalm 95 why because in his hands are the depths of the earth The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So we praise Him because He created us, He created all that is. Another reason is that God is King over all, He's not just the creator of all. It is. He's sovereign Lord over all that is. So, for example, Psalm 47, verses 5 through 7. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. But praise Him because He's our Creator. Praise Him because He's King and Lord over all that He's made. A third category of praises are not just He's Creator and He's King, but He's with us. His presence is with us. We saw that in Psalm 117. That's what it's getting at when it talks about His steadfast love, His covenant love to us, and His faithfulness to His covenant. He's present with us. And then the last category, by far, by far the most common reason given for praise to, in these praise psalms is for God's deliverance, for His deliverance of us in times of trouble. Psalm 98 is a, a good example of this. Um, we don't have time to, to read all of Psalm 98 but I just want to point out something interesting about the fact that Psalm ninety-eight is a good example of deliverance psalm. Deliverance praise. Anybody that took notes about which books made up which Psalms made up Book 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5? Can somebody tell me if they took good notes what book of the Psalms Psalm 98's in? Book four. And what's distinctive about book four? It's looking back to Moses' day, and God delivered Moses in the Exodus, and we're hoping that he will, and we're praising him because he will, God hasn't changed. He will deliver us in our day. So it's not surprising that this is just an example of a, a, a classic book four kind of psalm. Looking back to God's deliverance in the past, he will deliver us again. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. And then the psalms end like they begin they they be, they end with another invitation to praise bless the Lord O my soul, praise the Lord all you nations, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. This is a simple category simple category it's a beautiful one though let me just I just want to end uh come back around in the end i want I want to end with a word about how these psalms are are useful in your own Prayer and life of praise. Um, For one. These Psalms in particular. Motivate us to prayer and praise. They motivate us to prayer and praise. If you have eyes to see. We need to open. To the Psalms every day. We need to read Psalms like these every day. I told you already. I, I begin most every day. With Psalm 95. It's good for my soul. When I'm when I'm halfway through my badly needed cup of coffee to have the Holy Spirit saying, oh, come, oh, come, praise the Lord. Because otherwise, if I don't have the Holy Spirit through Psalm 95 or some other praise psalm telling me to praise the Lord, then I'm just going to be weighed down by whatever I have going on. And I'm gonna be a, I'll just be a me monster all day. I need to be reminded that there are bigger things outside of my little world of what I have going on that are worth praising the Lord for. And that's the second thing. Not only do these psalms motivate us to pray, but these psalms show us what is important and what what is important to value and what is important to praise God for. Like, that's what these psalms do. Like... Think about those things that they praised God for, creating us, being sovereign over us, being with us. And let me tell you, delivering us, let me tell you, they had more stresses and anxieties than we could ever imagine. Honestly, you don't ever really have to wonder where your food is coming from. You don't ever really think about crops or rain. Rain is mostly a nuisance, right? But they were dependent on the winds and rains of heaven for crops to grow, for their cows not to die, and their chickens. I mean, for for all the anxieties they had about and they didn't have good doctors. I mean, they—they they, all the stresses that you have, they had times about a 10. And they're still thinking about the fact that God is their creator. And he's a sovereign Lord. That's what they're praising him for. Big stuff. We need to think about these things. That, that, that's a motivation to... To think deeply about the Word and think deeply about the things of God, so that your your well is not an empty empty well when it comes time to praise. But then, not only do they remind us that it's important, but they they give us the very words to do it with. I've read you this before. I'm gonna read it to you again. This is a great book. I commend to you. It's a weird cover. Maybe they changed it since I bought it. But it's C.S. Lewis' reflections on the Psalms. Um he has a one of my favorite passages of all time on praise psalms. You know the story of, of uh C. S. Lewis that he um he was an atheist, right? And he set out to disprove Christianity fully and finally, and in the process came to faith in Christ and wrote mere Christianity and uh, as a Christian, uh he well, he was a literature uh, professor, so he, he was familiar with the Bible even before he was a Christian, familiar with the Psalms. Here's, here's what he said about, pray, about Psalms of praise, a word about praising. When I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block In the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should, we should praise God. Still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus a picture, at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. The Psalms are especially troublesome in this way. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. Praise him. And why, incidentally, did praising him so often consist in telling other people to praise him? It was, it was hideously like saying, what I want, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great but I believe now I see what the author meant. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment, all enjoyment, spontaneously overflows in praise the world rings with praise he says lovers praising their mistresses readers their favorite poet walkers praising the countryside players praising their favorite game praise of weather wines dishes actors motors horses colleges countries Historical people, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. And I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise what they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't it lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till is it expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. This is so even when our expressions are inadequate. The worthier the object, the more intense the delight would be. If it were possible for a created soul to appreciate, that is to love and delight in the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude. It is along these lines that I find it easiest to understand the Christian doctrine of heaven and a state in which angels now and men hereafter are perpetually employed in praising God. So the catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him.